I'm excited to be with you today. I'm excited about our lesson today. Uh, I, I really feel like, oh, our, our brother John wrote down uh, this great story, and it's hopefully going to change us today. It's, it's been working on me quite a bit. Let's go before the Lord, and let's thank him for his uh, great work. Heavenly Father, we do come before you and remind ourselves uh, how powerful you are, that you are the answer of prayers, that you are the keeper of promises, uh, that you are with us in the darkest of times uh, and in the best of times. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the work that we've seen in Anna, uh, the, her miraculous recovery. Lord, we know that there were many, many people all over the world knocking on your door, and we would not quit. Uh, we tried to annoy you with this one. Um, we tried to keep knocking on the door and keep knocking on the door. And Lord, um, we just had no other place to take this except to you. She was in such bad shape. And now, Lord, we see, uh, we see her coming awake. We see her talking. We see her getting to spend time with her baby. And, Lord, we can't do anything except praise you and thank you for who you are and what you've done and your power and your majesty. And, Lord, we're grateful for that. We want to mention even another church that shared with us, uh, the Medina Community Church, who said so many prayers as well. Lord, we all lifted Anna's name up. They did too. And Bill uh, Stegen Mueller, who was their pastor there. And so, Lord, we want to pray for that church. Uh, we feel a connection to them because they come before your throne in the same way that we do. Uh, we lifted up um, many prayers uh, in the same way and at the same time. And we're grateful for your kingdom and that it includes people like uh, the folks at Medina Community Church. And so, Lord, we ask that you bless them this morning. Uh, I ask that you pour out your gift of preaching on Bill. I ask that you do the same for me. Lord, let us take your text, and let us be moved by it because it is your holy word. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray all of this. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you've been with us, we're in the book of John, and we were doing the I am statements. Uh, we, we did uh, I am the bread. We did I am the gate. We did I am the good shepherd. We did I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're not going to do the last one. The last one is I am the true vine. And the reason for that is because when I first got here, I, I, man, I got you like on six weeks with I am the true vine. You don't need to hear that from me anymore. So I will encourage you, if you would like to, and you say, hey, I missed that one. I want to go see it. You can find it on our website. You can go back around the end of July uh, through August, and you can see an in-depth uh, look at I'm the True Vine. That's one of my favorite ones. I love that story, and I love that connection. So you can do that. So we are back into uh, John as we continue to go through. And in particular, today we're in John 12. And this story that happened with Mary anointing Jesus Man, this is a good one. This is a great story. And if I can, I'm going to give you a little context on this. One is Jesus is now at this time, he is making his march towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. He is very purposeful in what he's doing. He is on a mission to get there, and he knows that death faces him and that the cross faces him, but that's where he is going. He has become more public about who he is. He's become more public and more bold about his identity and who he's going to be. And just right after this story, you're going to see this is, this is when he actually enters Jerusalem and claims the title publicly in front of a lot of people, the Messiah and the King. So this is the direction that he's going. But right now, what we have right before then is he has returned to the scene of his most public and amazing miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He was just there recently. And we read in the chapter before this, in, in chapter 11, about him raising Lazarus from the dead. And now he's back there. 
And many, it says, if you think about this for a second, he's come back there and they're throwing a dinner party for him, which is the least you could do for somebody who raises a relative of years from the dead. You want to provide tacos, something. But uh, there's a, they're doing a dinner for him. And you need to know that there were people there because this was so public. Don't forget that after he raised Lazarus from the dead, Scripture says there was a lot of people from Jerusalem who had come there to mourn with Mary and Martha. And they saw what happened with the raising of Lazarus. And many of them believed. Lives were changed. But some of them did not believe. And instead, what they did was they went to the Pharisees and they went to the teachers of the law. And that's when the plans came that it said. And from that time on, they looked for a way to kill him. So it was a very public and a very big miracle. And so now he's back in this town where he was recently to have this dinner. And then Mary comes in. She pours the perfume on his feet, and she wipes it with her hair. And Judas is upset. Of course he is. You know, it's interesting. You know, I don't have to say Judas Iscariot. You can say Judas. Everybody knows who you're talking about, right? He's like Cher or Madonna or something like that, the one name. Judas. And we know he's a villain, and in this case, they even talk about him being a thief. And he's upset at what she's doing. Now, here's the problem. And this is how this story's been working at me for a long time. As I look at this story and I put myself into it, being there at that time and what you were seeing, I think I would have agreed with Judas. I find myself in this place where I go, I think I would have reacted the way that he reacted. When I really look at myself and the things that I've believed and the things that I've done, I'm afraid that I would have found myself in, thinking what he did. And, and it's troubling to me because I want to look and go, how in the world do I find myself in the camp with Judas? One of the things that I need, we need to realize is this was not just an isolated incident. I just blew past it. She came in. She anointed his feet. What's the problem? Well, you need to know there's a lot of problem here. There's a lot of stuff that people could look at and have a problem with. Number one, you need to know, she was probably not seated at the table with Lazarus. It says Martha was serving. She probably was serving in some way. They didn't normally eat together, so she interrupts the meal. This is not like part of the, the dinner and, and a show. She comes in in the middle, and she interrupts this meal when she does this. She broke open a pound of expensive ointment. If we look at Mark 14, and by the way, if you want to write something in your margin over there, this story is also told in Mark 14. It appears to be the same story. There's some differences, but one of the things that it says is she just broke it open and poured a pound of it. I don't know if you've ever spilled a pound of perfume before, but you need to know that's a lot, and it goes everywhere, all over the place. So she took this expensive ointment. And you need to know when we talk about expensive, they're talking about a year's wage, not a year's savings. This would be as if you saved up a year of what you make and you bought perfume with it. So let's just put a number. It's a $50,000 bottle of perfume. And she breaks it. And she pours it and it goes everywhere and it fills the room. And you need to know when you're eating, I'm sure that was wonderful, but the idea of perfume filling the room while I'm having my steak makes the steak taste pretty bad. It would have been overwhelming in the smell. She dumps it on Jesus. She doesn't save any of it. It goes everywhere. And then she lets down her hair, which is something that a woman would not do during that time. It was immodest in every way. And she begins to wipe his feet with them. This whole thing is over the top. 
It's over the top in so many ways. It's over the top in money. It's over the top in customs and the way that they're broken. It's over the top in the odor. It's over the top in the way that she asked it. It's over in the way that she acted. In every way, it was over the top. And I got to tell you, when I look back, I can see myself and go, I've gone in some places and I've seen some of God's people and I've seen churches where I went, this is over the top and I don't like it. I've been in that place before. Found myself at a church where it seems like the design and the stage and the lights and the sound system and everything that's going on is it's just too opulent. It's too much. They spent too much on it. I find myself even saying the words before. Man, I wonder how many people they could have helped if they hadn't spent all their money on this. Man, that's almost exactly the words that he was saying. My first reaction to extravagance, to making a spectacle of yourself... To go in over the top in every way is typically I have looked down on it. I don't know about you. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I've been in this spot. I think about the best ways to use things. The best way. As a matter of fact, I was an executive minister for a large church. That was part of my job. What's the best use of our resources? What's the best way for us to use the money that's given, the building that we have, the people that we have? And I got to tell you, if I was in this spot... My brain works that way, and I don't think I would have approved. This is not the best way. And, of course, then I find myself going, man, I'm like Judas. But it wasn't just Judas. If you look at the story in Mark, it doesn't just say that it was Judas who had a problem. It says several of them that were there were indignant about it. They were angry. There was a lot of religious people there that were followers of Jesus, and they became angry that she's doing this. And I'm afraid I would have been one of them. It's just too extravagant. And I got to tell you, if you're like me as a group, we don't tend to like extravagant. We don't tend to like over the top. In a lot of ways, our background and our faith sometimes is based on the mental aspects of things right up here. And if you look at this right up here, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We like to think about what's good theology I wonder if I would have said, hey, quote me chapter and verse on this and why this is okay for her to do it. By what authority does she worship in this way? A lot of times we can look at this and we can go, let's not overdo it, okay? Can we try and keep our composure? Is it all right if we just keep a little decorum and make sure we don't make too big a deal? Judas, on the other hand, is looking at this and he's doing a cost versus benefit analysis. I don't know if you can relate to this. My brain works this way sometimes too. The cost versus the result on this. What's the return on this? And he looks at it and he th says, there's a better way to get a return on this perfume that you have, this expensive, valuable thing that you have. You're not using it right. You're investing. You can see him saying, to her, you're investing and you're sowing into the wrong thing. This is not where you'll get the best return on your investment in this. Is this act really worth the outcome? Because it's going to be over in a little bit, and all we've got is a big spilled thing of perfume in a room that smells bad that nobody can eat in. This is probably not a good use of what you have. How does this make sense? And I want to tell you, I mentioned this last week, but you know there's some theories about Judas, and I, I don't know, I don't pretend to know exactly what was going on in the heart of Judas, but there's some theories that some people say maybe Judas was acting when he betrayed Jesus with the idea of saying, what I really want is to force his hand to become king. 
And so he turns them over to the authorities. Because if I turn him over, then finally he'll become king. He'll finally do what he's supposed to do. He'll become the king that I want him to be. And that's what I need, is for him finally to step in and do what I want him to do. Maybe that's true, I don't know. The other part of this is it talks about he was the keeper of the bag and he would have had the money. He's doing this for his own benefit and he's doing this because he's a thief and he wants the money out of this. Either way, what you have is Judas looking at this and going, what can I get out of it? What can I get? When will Jesus become what I want him to do? And what I want from him is more important than who he is. I need him to be what I need him to be. Either I need him to become king so that will put me in the right spot and my thoughts of what's supposed to be will happen or I need to get the money from it. But no matter what, it's this sort of transactional attitude he has. If you will do what you're supposed to do, then I'll get what I need. And when we start looking at Jesus for what we can get out of him instead of who he is, that is a dangerous place for us to be. What a dangerous place for anybody to be. So no matter what he was doing or what he was thinking, he was critical of this over-the-top reaction. This is too much to spend on one person. Even Jesus. This is too much to just pour out all over the place. You didn't save any of it. It's done. We can't use it anymore. This is too big a demonstration, and it's too over-the-top. This guy lived with Jesus for three years. He walked around. He listened to him talk. He watched him heal people. He saw him perform miracles. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And this is what he thinks. It's too much. Too big a deal. Let me switch. What did Mary see? Something different. She saw something very different. Because you got to know, she sat at his feet too. We hear that. That's the first place we see Mary is she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's listening to him. She heard the same teachings that Judas did. She saw the same miracles that, Jesus, that Judas did. She heard the same things. She saw the same things in so many ways. She walked with him also. She watched him heal others. And of course she saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And she has a complex relationship. This is not somebody who follows blindly. Don't forget this complex relationship. She's also the one who was angry at him when he didn't come and he didn't save Lazarus from dying in the first place. She was the one who said, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. She had accusation. She was heartbreak. He didn't answer right away when she called. He wasn't what she always expected him to be. She had been angry at him. She had been disappointed in him. But she remained faithful. She even brought her frustration to him and she threw him at his feet. And that's where she ended up too. At this place of throwing this frustration, this hurt, everything at the feet of Jesus. And now she's got to be thinking, here Jesus is back again the first time probably she's seen him since, since Jesus raised her brother from the dead. What do you do for someone who raised your brother from the dead? How do you react? How do you react? What is, what is the appropriate thing for someone who's become more than your guide, more than your rabbi, but your rabbi, your personal rabbi, who you have come to believe is God in the flesh? When you've come face to face with God in the flesh and in the presence of holiness, what is the right reaction? So she takes the thing that she values most in the world, probably the most expensive thing that she owns, and she uses it. And to use it means to break it and to crush it and to destroy it. 
You tear it open so that it goes everywhere. I remember, you remember the old piggy banks? The whole idea is you put all this in there and you have all this money, and then when you need it, it didn't have an opening, so you have to hit it with a hammer. And the idea is for you to get that out of there, for you to use what this, what's valuable inside, you have to break it. And so that's what she did. So she broke it open and she poured it all out as an offering. Don't forget the word Messiah means anointed one. And she anoints him. This is something that's really interesting that I thought about too. When you go back and you remember when Jesus came after Lazarus was dead, Martha went out and confronted Jesus and Mary went out and confronted Jesus. When Martha confronted Jesus, she said, if you'd been there, this wouldn't have happened. And then he asked her a question and she responds with, Yes, I believe you're the Messiah, anointed one. And I believe you're the Son of God. Then Mary comes out and says, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus just weeps with her, but she never got a chance to say, I believe who you are. She didn't confess Messiah. She didn't confess Son of God. And I wonder if after a time and he comes back, she goes, this is it. This is my opportunity to come and say what I know is true. I didn't say it before, but I'm going to say it now. I anoint him as king. I anoint him as the, the leader, my savior, the one who changed my life in every way. This is my chance to say it publicly and in front of everyone. You are Messiah. You are the son of God. Both Judas and Mary spent a lot of time with Jesus, and they saw the same things, and they heard the same things. How in the world could they act so differently? How is it possible? And one of the things I, I think we have to look at is to understand whose life was changed and whose wasn't. Mary comes to understand this actually is the bread of life. This is the good shepherd. This is the gate. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But more importantly, I'm in the presence of God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. What is the right reaction when you recognize that? Is it so over the top? Have we seen any less? So what did Jesus see? Because this is the real big question. And you go, okay, so Judas saw it this way and Mary saw it this way. Well, let's look at what did Jesus see? Because that's the big question and that's what really matters, right? And let me tell you one thing first. This is what this is not. This is not a pattern or a set of rules for worship or how to deal with the poor. Oftentimes we take stories like this and we look and we go, well, this is what they did. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to model that exactly. That's not what this is. That's not what's going on in this story. This is not to go, well, this is what worship is. You bring perfume, you break it open. Of course, I've noticed we haven't really been a people who really want to grab onto the idea of spending a year's wage and bringing it in here and breaking it open and doing that. We haven't really looked at that and gone, well, that's the pattern we need to follow. But that's okay because it's not a pattern. And it's also not a way for us to deal with the poor because one of the things that he says is you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And that's not our model, and that's not the way that we're supposed to deal with the poor. This is not a pattern. This is not a set of rules. This is more than that. What this is is what he's been saying all through the book of John and what John puts down time and time again. It is this, spirit and truth. 
Don't forget he had this conversation with another woman, right? The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4. Let's remind you of that one. John 4, 23 and 24. He's talking about worship. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Mary has realized this. This is her spiritual and truthful worship. I'm explaining who he is. I'm anointing him as king. That's who he is. And she recognizes this, and so she pours it all out, everything she's got, the most valuable thing she has. And she pours it all out on Jesus. And he honors it. This extravagant, over-the-top display, he honors it. If you look in this version in Mark 14, verses 6 through 9, this is the way he says it. He says, you leave her alone when they complained. You leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it is. Here we are. It's being told. This is what she did, something extravagant. There is a time to worship who Jesus is. Don't get me wrong. Tomorrow morning, if you want to come with me and hand out food, that's great. There's a time to hand out food and to help the poor. And there's a time to obey, and there's a time to evangelize, and there's a time to study. But don't forget, all of that needs to come under. There is a time to worship who God is. There's a time to look at our Savior and realize what he's done for us and to be overwhelmed in it. See, Judas wanted Jesus to be the king that he wanted. Mary realized he already was. He's already king. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. So then let me ask you this. What do we see when you look at this? We see through the eyes of Judas. We see through the eyes of Mary. Are you like me? Do you struggle with over the top? Do you struggle with ex ex extravagance, with too much? You may be looking at it right now and you go, well, sometimes I do. But sometimes I don't. It depends if there's extenuating circumstances, right? And I do that. Like, for instance, if Anna and Justin were here, this couple that we've known and that we loved, and she was on the brink of death, and now she's here and she's alive and she's coming out of ICU. If she was here in this room and we were singing praises to God about the goodness of God, and she and her husband fell on their face right here and started worshiping, what would we do? We're going to go too much? I can't believe you would do that. Why are you making a spectacle? Really? It's over the top. There's better use of your praise and your worship than that. Than you falling on your face or do we join in? And I'll tell you a lot of it for me and what I've been is I would look and go, well, that makes sense. He saved her life. Has he done any less for you? Is there anything less? Have we not seen the same? Are we not the same people who have been saved in every single way? What is the appropriate response to that? And I know we look at it and we could go, well, in worship, that's one thing, but what she was doing there is that was not in the assembly and that was not in worship, and this is what she did. And you go, that's fine. That's fine. I get that. Let me tell you another story about extravagance and over the top. 
I got a couple of pictures here, if I could show you one of them here. I don't know if you recognize this. That one, and then show the next one if you would. You know that story? 2006, a man named Charles Roberts walked into a school in Pennsylvania, and he took several hostages. And he took the life of several little girls. And then he turned the weapon on himself. And the interesting thing is the people of this community and this school are Amish people. And if you know something about the Amish people, they are known for kind of their over-the-top sort of beliefs in following Jesus. That it has to do with the way they live their lives. And most people look at them and go, that's too much, right? And I get that in a lot of ways. But you need to know after this happened, there was a whole new way that people were looking at them and going, that's too much. Let me tell you how. Within one day of this happening... The families and the community of them came forward and held a press conference and talked about how they forgive him. Within a day. This is what one of the elders of the community said. I don't think there's anyone here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but also to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. They... The community and the family of victims in this case comforted the family of the killer. They visited the widow, they visited his parents, and they visited his in-laws. And they established a charitable fund for the family so that they would have enough to bury the man who did this to them. And about 30 of their community attended his funeral. And you need to know, there was a lot of people that stood by and went, too much, too extravagant, too over the top. They took a lot of backlash. There were some commentators who criticized the quick and complete forgiveness that they had, arguing that forgiveness like this is inappropriate when there hasn't been shown any remorse, and that such attitudes risk denying the existence of evil, as if this would happen again before they went, because they went. It's the idea of going too much, too extravagant, too over the top. Why would you pour out forgiveness all over someone who did this to you who doesn't deserve it? You're making a mistake. There's better use for your forgiveness, and there's better use for your mercy, and there's better use for your grace. Not like this. This is wrong. The wife of the shooter wrote an open letter, and this is what she said to them. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need the gifts you've given have touched our hearts in ways no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Your over-the-top pouring out of forgiveness all over the place has changed our world. See, the problem with me scorning extravagance and looking at it and going, that's too much, can you tone it down a little bit? It seems to be a bit much. Is that it makes what is remarkable and it makes it routine. What Jesus has done is not routine. Worship is a response to seeing Jesus and our Heavenly Father for exactly who they are. And when you start to see them for exactly who they are, what's the appropriate response? What should it be? And you need to know, I'm not talking about just physical stuff. I'm talking about the way we worship and the way that we live and the way that we follow. Should it not be over the top in some way? Should there not be these times where the world goes, that's too much? 
People who've been showered with this much mercy and this much grace and this much forgiveness and this much love, should we not be people that when they look at us, they go, boy, tone it down a little. Have we seen or experienced any less? See, over-the-top extravagant praise, worship, living, our whole time of the way that we look at Jesus. See, you don't respond like that. You don't respond like Mary, and you don't respond like the Thurmans are responding, and you don't respond like that Amish community did because someone gave you a list of behavior and rules to follow. This is not about a rule book or an instruction manual. That's not what does it. You do this because you realize you've encountered the power and the love and the holiness of a God who saved you. That's the reaction. That's what our lives should be. It reminds me so much of Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. You know that one? It's the, it's the holy, holy, holy verse, right? It's this idea of Isaiah, and he had this vision, and he goes to the temple, and this is what he sees. And you need to know that that word holy means separate, means different. He's looking at God and going, not like us, not like us, not like us. And the angels fly around. This is what it says, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin... It's atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Isn't that amazing? I saw the Lord and I screamed out, Holy, holy, holy. I realized that my sins were forgiven. I realized that I encountered the living God. I love that phrase, Woe to me, I am ruined. You know, if you look in the ASV, It says, I'm undone. In other words, I came face to face with who God is, and I'm undone. It unraveled me. It took me apart. Made me fall into a heap. Is that not our reaction that we should have in seeing the God that we have? It should take us apart, unravel us in every way. When's the last time you were unraveled at who God is? When's the last time you recognized that you've been made clean by Jesus And it just took you apart. You realize the mercy, and you realize the grace, and you realize what's happened. And it unraveled you, and you were undone. You were ruined. All pretense and decorum goes out the window at that point. You turn into a puddle, you collapse, because my unclean eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Is that not what was going on with Mary? Is that not what was going on with people whose lives are saved. Is that not even what was going on with these people as they said, I have encountered a Lord who's forgiven me and so I can pour out this forgiveness on those who don't deserve it because I recognize what's happened. Is that not our reaction that we should have in every way? 
Listen, I was raised to believe that the Lord appreciates reverence and being solemn, and he does. If our hearts are there, when we encounter holiness, when we recognize who he is, if that's your reaction, the Lord appreciates that. I still believe that to be true. But when we look at this story, you got to realize that the Lord also appreciates extravagance and purposeful lack of dignity and decorum on his part. I'm not telling you what to do when we sing. I'm not. It's about more than that. Worship is your whole life. It's what we do with everything. It's what we do with our time and what we do with our money and what we do with our job. And to be able to pour every single bit of it out for the Lord. Jesus holds that up and honors it. You poured everything out for me? Oh, it'll be remembered and it'll be told. That's who we are. That's who we should be. If I can, this is the time I want to ask you to pull this out. We're going to take a minute. We're going to do communion together here in just a minute. And I want you to think about this because it's really important that you think about when is the time that you saw who God was, that he revealed his mercy and he revealed his love, and it undid you. I mean, it just unraveled you. And it could be anything. Maybe it was a miracle of when you saw your child being born. Maybe it was a time where you were out at a certain place and you saw it in such a way. Maybe it was in the quiet. Maybe it was when he saved you, your physical life, your spiritual life. Maybe it was the time that he called you back to him. But it's important for us to remember these times where we were undone in some way. And I'll ask you if you would, we're going to take communion and then I'm going to give you a few minutes in silence and write those down. And then here in a minute, we're going to have some folks going up and down the aisles and we'll collect some of those and we're going to bring them, you can keep it anonymous and we'll read a few up here and then we'll pray over them because it's really important for me to see you and see Christ through your eyes in a way that you were undone because that reminds me of what he's done. And we'll fill this whole room with this sweet aroma of us anointing him as king as well. Before we do that, though, this story, as much as anything, it leads us to the table. It leads us to communion because this whole story is about pouring out everything. It's about you taking it and you breaking it and it's spilling everywhere. And this extravagant act, she broke this and spilled it everywhere in this extravagant act of worship for him. That's what we remember with this. Matthew 26, 28 says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, and it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is when he broke his own vessel. When he broke himself, and he poured out mercy, he poured out grace, and he poured out forgiveness, and it was extravagant, and it was over the top, and it was too much, and it was moving, and it filled the whole earth with this fragrance of sacrifice. It was over the top. That's what we remember when we take this. We remember that this is all about pouring it all out. Let's pray for the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this, for this bread. We thank you for what it reminds us, that our Jesus had a physical body here on this earth and that it was broken in every single way, that it went through such torture, such pain, such hurt, and that through that we were saved in so many ways. And so, Lord, as we take this, we remember that he is the bread of life, and because of it, we have life. 
It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And now the cup. Lord, we thank you and we remember that our Savior, when his body was broken, that his blood spilled. And it is what washed us clean and what continuously washes us clean. Let us never make that routine. Let us never make that something that we take for granted. Let us to remember to be people in awe of what's happened. Let us to be remembered. Let us remember that he poured it all out. There was none that was saved, that it was poured out in every single way to forgive us. And because of that, we are justified in your eyes. We are without sin. We are without shame. We are without guilt. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we remember. It's in the name of Jesus that we take this. Amen. Take a few minutes in silence, if you would. Think about a time when you encountered the majesty of God. <laughs>